0: Welcome to the reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Thursday, January 18, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. The headline from today's paper is, Trump Wins Cedar Valley. Former President Donald Trump scored an overwhelming victory in the Iowa caucuses Monday, and the Blackhawk County voters followed the lead of their Iowa Brethren, awarding the Republican frontrunner a solid victory in the county. With 100% of precincts reporting, Trump received 1,782 votes, or 52.23% across the 59 precincts in Waterloo, Cedar Falls, Evansdale, Hudson, Laporte City, Dunkerton, and Denver. Nikki Haley, former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador, and Florida governor Ron DeSantis, received 750 votes, or 21.98%, and 547 votes, or 16.03 percent, respectively. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy rounded out the top four with 308 votes, or 9.03 percent. The other candidates, businessman Ryan Binkley and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, took home 17 votes, or 0.50 percent, and four votes, or point one two percent respectively four votes or point one two percent were cast other republican voters from cedar falls ward 2 gathered at the C- central rivers area education agency building on hudson road to cast the nation's first votes in the race for the republican presidential nomination as many predicted trump garnered the most votes and Haley nudged out DeSantis for second place among local participants. Voters braved sub-zero weather and a full parking lot to cast their votes. Site coordinator Ryan Howard had things running in an efficient manner. Participants checked in when they entered the building and were guided to one of three rooms set up for each ward. In total, 172 voters took part. Howard looked for Trump to win by a large margin and predicted a toss-up for the number two spot. We have some pretty highly highly informed voters here, said Howard, who was happy with the turnout. Christine May, a retired teacher, felt it was important to attend. As a Republican, we all have to unite and go for a change in our world, she said. DeSantis was her candidate of choice. He says all the right stuff. He is the right age and has the right demeanor, she said. Once a Democrat, May cited a loss of logic for her switch of parties. Before voting, two participants were able to speak for each of the candidates. In the Precinct 3 room, two spoke for Vivek Ramaswamy and two spoke for Trump. Voters wrote their candidate's name on on small slips of colored paper, which were collected and counted. Vote totals for Precinct 1, Ramaswamy 2. This ward includes the University of Northern Iowa campus. Precinct 2, Trump 32, Haley 21, DeSantis 18, Ramaswamy 8, and Ryan Binkley 1. Precinct 3, Trump 39, DeSantis 21, Haley 20, and Ramaswamy 10. Ward totals, Trump 71, Haley 41, DeSantis 39, Ramaswamy 20, and Binkley one, Although Trump received the majority of caucus votes in the Waterloo Ward 2, supporters of his opponents braved the cold to back their candidates. Steve and Debbie Lehman attended the Ward 2 caucus together at Columbus Catholic High School to vote for DeSantis. Steve Lehman said all the Republican candidates are fairly similar and his choice was based on personality. I don't think Trump's a good person, Lehman said. I think he's got his own agenda for everything and it's not the people's agenda. The couple didn't caucus in 2020 due to Trump being the incumbent, but caucused for Jeb Bush in 2016. The room also was filled with first-time caucus goers. Tyler Kulander, 24, came out to support Ramaswamy. Kulander backed the field's youngest candidate, because of his work ethic, noting that Ramaswamy made the most campaign stops. He is really doing his best to get people like myself even to be interested in politics, colander said. There are not many presidential candidates that really have drawn my attention or connected with people of my age. Precincts one and two both met in the gym, resulting in the precinct chairs, talking over each other much of the time. Precinct one filled up one side of the gym's bleachers, and 103 people cast ballots for their presidential pick. That precinct's vote totals were Trump, 54, Haley, 21, DeSantis, 18, Ramaswamy, 7, Binkley, 2, and Hutchinson, 1. Totals from precinct 2 were Trump, 14, DeSantis, 9, Haley, 5, Ramaswamy, 3, Binkley, 1. There were 32 votes. Precinct 3, Trump 26, DeSantis 3, Haley 2, Ramaswamy 2, for a total of 33 votes. Precinct 4, Trump 31, Haley 7, DeSantis 6, Ramaswamy 4, for a total of 48 votes. Precinct 5, Trump 30, DeSantis 6, Haley 5, Ramaswamy 1, for a total of 42 votes. The entire ward totals were Trump, 155, DeSantis, 42, Haley, 40, Ramaswamy, 17, Binkley, 3, Hutchinson, 1. Cedar Falls, Ward, 5. Bleachers were full with a couple hundred people representing two precincts inside a Pete Junior High School gymnasium. The results matched expectations for many Republicans for at least one of those precincts. Cedar Falls, Ward, 5. Precinct, 2. Trump won with 62 votes, or 39.74% of those cast. He put forth a lot of policies that helped us. He ran the country like a business, Matt Stanford, a Trump porter, said to those in attendance. He cited Trump's push to close the Mexico-U.S. border, his retreat from international entanglements, and his capabilities of returning the country to its basis in faith. He ran this country well and he was trying to save this nation. And there's been nothing but political warfare used against him as we have a media that's only run by four to five conglomerates. Vivek and Trump want to help this nation. Everybody else is establishment. Everybody else is part of the swamp. Haley was the only other candidate to have two people speak publicly in favor of her. Haley and DeSantis received 42 votes or 26.92% and 37 votes, or 23.72% respectively. Ramaswamy, an entrepreneur, rounded out the tally with 15 votes, or 9.62%. No other candidates received votes. I think that Nikki is the best qualified to serve as president. Running a state as governor is like running a miniature country, Aaron Konigsfeld, one of Haley's supporters, said in front of her precinct. Nikki has more experience in the day-to-day workings of government than most of our current members of Congress. Coningsfield also cited Haley's foreign policy experience and her smart, diplomatic, stable, and firm demeanor advocating for the United States. She noted her long resume as an accountant and a layperson and said those attributes will uh, contribute to smart spending and getting things done. I want the person that we elect to have the ability to serve us. I don't want a candidate tied up in distracting legal squabbles after they become president, she said. Truman Stone entered the Pete Gymnasium with his wife, Janetta, to be part of the democratic process after having caucused for the first time in 2016. Stone came ready to vote for Trump because of his resume from the business world and his belief he's a born leader, He voted for him in 2016 and 2020 after first seeing him test the waters in 2015 at Wartburg College. He has a lot of respect around the world. I was impressed when he talked with Kim Jong-un. They looked like they got along pretty good, Stone said. His wife added that Trump tells foreign leaders where he stands instead of being told where to stand. Janetta Stone, however, did not plan to vote for Trump because he is only eligible to serve one more term. She planned to vote for DeSantis, the other alternative to Haley. I don't trust Haley. She says what people want to hear, and then she'll say something different to someone else, Janetta Stone said. Ron Andreessen said he doesn't an- answer the phone to be polled, but noted strong feelings about one candidate brought him to Pete. I'm here because of Nikki Haley, he said. Andreessen voted for Trump before, but was looking for a younger candidate and liked Haley's experience in foreign affairs and as governor. He disliked Trump because he's not being very presidential. I felt Trump would win, he said after the results were shared aloud, but the margin was a little closer than what I thought. Waterloo Ward won. The Republican faithful braved the cold as more than 250 showed up at Fed Becker, Fred Becker Elementary School to show their support for the candidates, some for the first time. Joan Block was at her first GOP caucus, having changed her party affiliation at the site. A former longtime Democrat, Block said several issues sparked the change, including problems at the border, inflation, and the fact that President Biden cannot speak a clear sentence. For others, supporting the GOP was a family affair. Junior Delegate John Wood was there to support Donald Trump. His father, also named John, gave an impassioned speech to more than 100 people in Precinct 6, saying, He, Trump, does not care about his personal interests. Donald is at the top of his game right now. He should be enjoying his family, he should be enjoying his grandchildren, but he's not. He loves this country. I see his patriotism when I hear him talk about this country. I see the tears in his eyes. Dale Stabenow, 86, was at the caucus to make America greater. He was supporting Trump but said he liked DeSantis as well. Concern about gas and food prices as well as Trump moving the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem made him stay loyal to the former president. He thinks another Trump presidency would see the border wall completed. Steve Schmidt, a former Waterloo City Council member, was a surrogate for Ron DeSantis. Schmidt, compared DeSantis to Governor Kim Reynolds, saying, Florida rivaled Iowa in its ability to keep schools open during the pandemic. Everything he has done, he has done with substantial opposition, just like President Trump, but DeSantis was able to overcome. He got things done. I firmly believe that if he is president, that he will do the same thing in the White House. Veteran Mark Sampson was a surrogate for Vivek Ramaswamy and said, In a country full of lies, I am asking you to stand for the truth. Vivek is not a politician. He is a successful businessman. If there is someone that is able to shut down the deep state, I think it is Vivek. Margaret Klein, another Waterloo, former Waterloo council member, said, I was so surprised at the good turnout we had. I was amazed at people's ability to join in. And there were differing opinions, but we all talked them out back and forth. And then we took our vote, and it was wonderful. Now turning to page two, Farm to Fork Dinner on February 7th. Organic producer Wendy Johnson to speak at the annual dinner, Dateline Cedar Falls. A locally sourced dinner is on the menu for the February 7th annual Farm to Fork Dinner at the Diamond Event Center, 5307 Caraway Lane, presented by the Cedar Valley Regional Food and Farm Network. Keynote speaker is Wendy Johnson, an organic and conventional grain farmer and grazier in Floyd County. It's always great to talk about local food. The dinner is a great celebration and opportunity to gather around food and celebrate local farmers who are providing food in our region. I'm a food producer, too. I want to lift up everybody who grows local food and help people gain awareness about local food, Johnson said. We've been working with the chefs at the Diamond Event Center to create a menu that utilizes local ingredients and local producers, said Jody Hugerich, a registered dietitian and University of Northern Iowa local food program manager. The evening begins with the social hour from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. There will be a cash bar and appetizers, including a butter board and hummus board. Dinner begins at 6.30 p.m. featuring French onion soup, beef bourguignon or beef burgundy with mashed potatoes and gravy. The vegan option is quinoa polenta cakes with marinated mushrooms. Dessert is apple cobbler. A limited number of tickets are available through January 22nd at cvfoodfarmnetwork.org slash farm to fork dinner. Cost is $30 per person. Farmer producer with grow eat play directory membership, twenty dollars and table for eight is two hundred dollars. Farm to fork dinners began in two thousand fifteen. The dinners a time for people to come together and have great conversations about local food and meet some of our local producers. I always get questioned about why we have a dinner in February. It's after harvest for producers and it's possible to get local food during the winter. It just looks different than in July, Hugh Rich explained. She describes the dinner as an opportunity to share a table, a story, and a meal while supporting our local food system. We have a wide variety of attendees. It's an event for everyone who is interested in learning more about local food or are passionate about local food. There are about 50 local producers active in the Cedar Valley Food and Farm Network Producers. Producers appreciate the opportunity to advertise and educate consumers about their products and businesses, whether those consumers are individuals, families, restaurants, grocery stores, or schools. We are continuing to bring people together, working together to support local producers. A lot of work is involved with food access, making sure people can access fresh, healthy local foods, Hugh Rich said. Johnson and her husband, Johnny, own and operate Joya Food and Fiber Farm, a diversified organic perennial-based farm growing food-grade perennial kernza and other small grains. Kernza is described as a substitute for annual wheat in baked goods or beer or can be used as a whole grain like rice or barley. The Johnson's Farm also grazes ewes, grass-finishing lamb and cattle, and custom grazing cow calves, selling direct-to-consumer meats and other edibles. A CVRFFN member, Johnson, said the organization allows farmers to network and support each other. Outreach is important for a farm business. We wear so many hats. We're veterinarians, bookkeepers, carpenters, electricians, all those things and more. We can also inform consumers about alternatives to shopping in grocery stores. You can buy foods direct from farmers. That includes vegetables, fruits, meat, dairy, fiber, and more. In 2020, Johnson found Counting Sheep Sleep Company, a wool bedding business, using wool from her sheep. The business is in direct response to her realization that wool shorn from her sheep once a year by shearers was being sold, packed into barge boxes, and shipped to China. Then it's picked apart and put into cheap sweaters and sent back to the U.S., Understanding that supply chain was enlightening, she said. Johnson also co-manages her family farm with her father, a 1,000-acre conventional row crop farm implementing soil health practices. Additionally, Johnson and her husband have invested in agroforestry practices in the last five years to enhance diversity and resiliency to land and animals. Johnson is chair of the Iowa FSA State Committee former board member and chair of the Practical Farmers of Iowa, steering committee member of Rodale Institute Midwest Organic Center, a farm consultant and policy co-lead for climate land leaders, and serves on the boards of Perennial Promise Growers Cooperative, Regenerative Agriculture Foundation, and Floyd County Board of Adjustments. The next story is Waterloo OK's Parklets Plan by Maria Kuyper. Stateline Waterloo. With some restrictions, some downtown businesses can expand their service areas into a parking space. The Waterloo City Council unanimously approved an ordinance to create parklets in the downtown area Tuesday. A parklet extends a business by creating a raised platform, usually with tables and chairs, in the business's street parking spots. Parklets can be used by businesses serving food and drink, including alcohol. Main Street Director Jessica Rucker said parklets will not negatively affect parking downtown, saying there is an abundance of parking. The original ordinance stated parklets could be used until 2 a.m., but Police Chief Joe Leibold urged the council to change that to midnight, citing safety concerns. As it gets later at night, driving is more erratic there's an increased risk of accidents he said most bars and most restaurants are closed or not serving food after midnight anyway so you're talking basically bar activity which should be kept up on the sidewalk ward 1 council member john chiles who drafted the ordinance along with the main street waterloo said he didn't agree with Leibold's concerns i don't think it's going to affect safety one way or another and it simply prevents businesses from moving forward into those later times if that's something they choose to do, Childs said. I don't understand the need to limit anything with this. I don't see any safety issues happening here. Rucker reiterated that parklets would be in parking spaces, not in the actual street. She said she isn't aware of parked cars getting hit in that area after midnight. Ward 5 Council Member Ray Fuse motion to approve an amendment to end parklet operations at midnight rather than 2 a.m. That passed 4 to 3 with Council Members Belinda Creighton-Smith, Neil Wilder, and Childs voting against it. Another amendment would have limited parklets to streets with speed limits of 25 miles per hour or less. Childs said that limitation was meant to be in the proposed ordinance but somehow got deleted. This precludes parklets on one-way streets, such as 6th Street, which have a speed limit of 35 miles per hour. That amendment passed unanimously. Although three council members voted against the time change amendment, the ordinance passed unanimously and the rules were suspended, meaning second and third readings were waived. Business must get city approval to participate. The ordinance states the city will consider approval based on the number of other parking spaces, the needs of nearby businesses, and the advice of the Main Street Design Review Board. If liquor is served at the business, the police department also will review the application. Business owners will be responsible for maintenance, operation, and compliance of the parklet platform. Along with parklets, the city council unanimously approved a new sidewalk cafe program. It allows tables and chairs directly outside of establishments. At least five feet of space must be reserved for pedestrians. Sidewalk cafes can be used until 2 a.m. Alcoholic beverages would not be allowed between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. due to local and state liquor laws. The ordinance does not prohibit smoking or vaping in the sidewalk cafes, but states the establishment must follow the Iowa Smoke-Free Air Act. The Council also unanimously approved the termination of a development agreement with Todd Borwig for property north of 1332 Walker Street for the failure to complete a project for new housing. A development agreement with Studio Elysium LLC for the rehabilitation of 927 Sycamore Street to turn it into a residential unit and salon as well as a development grant of $5,000, and C-U-R-A tax abatement. The minimum assessment agreement is for $170,000. A development agreement with PWM-1 Warehouse, LLC, for the construction of no less than 83,900 square feet building for a minimum assessed value of $4.2 million near 3530 Marnie Avenue. It would receive tax rebates of 95% for years 1 through 11, 55% for year 12, and 50% for years 13 through 17. Turning to page 6, Northeast Iowa Area Escapades. Here are just a few of the events and goings-ons worth checking out this week in Northeast Iowa. Tonight, stand-up for comedy. Local artist David Olson will host open mic tonight at 7 p.m. for stand-up comedy at the Oster Regent Theatre, 103 Main Street, Cedar Falls. It's the Winter Cabaret Series, a pay-what-you-can event with no reservations required. Doors open at 6.30 p.m. Olsen will begin signing up audience members who want to participate in the show. The show will last until 8.30 p.m. on the third floor. Beer, wine, water, pop, and candy will be available to purchase. Friday, January 19th, Sons of Serendip at G.P.A.C. Sons of Serendip won hearts as finalists on America's Got Talent with their unique brand of pop music and musicianship. The quartet will be on Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center Great Hall Stage at 7 p.m. Friday in Cedar Falls. With four successful albums, the quartet has more than enough material to satisfy their fans. Members are lead vocalist Micah Christian, pianist, Cordero Rodriguez, harpist Mason Morton, and cellist Nathaniel Taylor. Tickets are available at the GBPAC box office or by calling 319-273-4849. A limited number of tickets are still available. Local soloist Sherry Jordan Wright will present a special lobby performance at 6 p.m. prior to the concert. Sherry was a member of the Jordan Ayers singing family and has been in music ministry for more than 60 years as Minister of Music, Musician, Director, and Soloist. She also serves as Director of the Jesse Cosby Community Collective Choir. Monday, January 22nd, visiting artist and University of Northern Iowa alum Ariana Edvinson will offer a clarinet recital at 8 p.m. Monday in Davis Hall at the Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center in Cedar Falls. Edvidson serves as adjunct instructor of clarinet at Mount Mercy University in Cedar Rapids and at Black Hawk College in Moline, Illinois, while maintaining a full private studio. She is currently pursuing a Doctor of Music Arts degree in clarinet performance and pedagogy with a concentration in musicology at the University of Iowa. The recital is free and open to the public. Tuesday, January 23rd, Eclectic Music on Recital program. Trumpet player and University of Northern Iowa faculty artist Randy Grabowski will perform a recital at 7.30 p.m. Tuesday. The event featuring an an eclectic mixture of music will take place in Binston Auditorium at Russell Hall, on the UNI campus in Cedar Falls. In addition, faculty, piano collaborator Sean Botkin and faculty artist Anne Branfield, saxophone, and Anthony Williams on trombone will also be featured. It is free and open to the public. On Thursday, January 25th through Saturday, January 27th, Festival of Bands features high schools. The annual Northern Festival of Bands begins Thursday, January 25th at the Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center in Cedar Falls. The weekend wind band event features selected students performing in bands led by internationally and nationally renowned conductors. They'll participate in master classes and workshops with UNI faculty and students and experience performances by UNI's ensembles, UNI Wind Ensemble, and Symphonic Band at 7.30 p.m. January twenty sixth. Festival bands and other groups perform at 2.00 p.m. January twenty seventh. Now we have this next. Waterloo Man Arrested on Weapons Charge Following Traffic Stop by Jeff Reinitz, Dateline Waterloo. Police have arrested a Waterloo man following a Tuesday night traffic stop. Keon Travond Sexton Pate, 22, was arrested for felony in possession of a firearm, carrying weapons, interference, and possession of a controlled substance, and bond was set at $10,000. Officers attempted to pull over a Volkswagen Taos, but the driver took off, parked in the 400 block of Thompson Avenue, and walked away. Sexton Pay was found walking nearby, and he allegedly struggled with officers. Police found keys to the vehicle, and K2 since that Synthetic marijuana on his person, according to court records. In the vehicle, authorities found a loaded 357 caliber Taurus revolver and a box of ammunition under the seat. Sexton Pate is prohibited from handling firearms because of a prior burglary conviction, according to court records. Then this victim in fatal shooting in Waterloo identified by Jeff Reinitz, Dateline Waterloo. Authorities have released the name of a Waterloo man who was killed in an early morning shooting Monday. Police identified this deceased as 19-year-old Joseph Quayle. Quayle was found dead of a gunshot wound shortly after police and paramedics arrived at his home at 208 Imani Street around 4:50 a.m. Monday. Investigators said Quayle Quayle suffered a single shot from a shotgun to the chest. The weapon has been recovered and officers have interviewed several people who were in the house at the time. No arrests have been made and the shooting remains under investigation. You are listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Thursday, January 18, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next we'll turn to today's obituaries. Joanne Lee Heckroth, July 7th, 1944 to January 11th, 2024 oh. and 2024. Joanne Lee Heckroth, 79, of Laporte City, passed away peacefully Thursday, January 11th, 2024 at her home surrounded by family. A visitation will take place from 4 to 6 p.m. Friday, January 19th, 2024 at St. Paul Methodist Church in LaPorte city funeral service will be saturday january 20 2024 at 11 a.m. at St. Paul United Methodist Church memorials may be directed to the family condolences may be left at lockfuneralservices.com robert e bob hayes junior june 6 1935 to january 15 2024 Robert E. Bob Hayes, Jr., 88, of Cedar Falls, Iowa, died Monday, January 15, 2024, at the Western Home Martin Center. He was born June 6, 1935, in Waterloo, son of Robert and Madeline Pint Hayes. Massive Christian burial as 10.30 a.m. Saturday, January 20, 20, at St. Patrick Catholic Church, Cedar Falls, with burial following a luncheon in Mount Olivet Cemetery, Waterloo. Public visitation from 4 to 8 p.m. Friday, January 19th at Haggerty Wakeoff garup Funeral Service on West Ridgeway Avenue, Waterloo, where there will be a 4 p.m. rosary and a 7 p.m. vigil service. Visitation will also occur one hour prior to the Mass on Saturday at the Church. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to St. Patrick Catholic School. Online condolences may be left at com Robert Joseph Gardner February 27th 1969 through January 10th 2024 Robert Joseph Gardner age 54 passed away on January 10th 2024 in Waterloo Iowa In a celebration of Robert's life will be planned for a later date in lieu of flowers, cards, or floral arrangements may be sent to 1425 25th Street, Marion, Iowa, 52302. His memory will forever live on in the hearts of those who knew and loved him. Rita Teresa Smith. Rita T. Smith, 93, of Sumner, died Saturday, January 13, 2024, at the Hillcrest Home in Sumner. Mass of Christian burial will be held at ten thirty AM Saturday, january twentieth, twenty twenty four, at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Sumner with Reverend Ralph Davis celebrating. Burial will follow at Mount Calvary Catholic Cemetery, rural Sumner. Visitation will be held from four to seven PM Friday, january nineteenth, at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church, and for one hour preceding Mass at the church on Saturday. A rosary will be recited at 3.45 p.m. Friday at the church. Becker and Son Funeral Home in Sumner is assisting Rita's family. Online condolences may be left at BeckerMilneRestick.com. Russell Allen Fulkers, April 5, 1951 to January 13, 2024. Russell Fulkers, age 72, died unexpectedly on January 13, 2024 in Garneville, Iowa. To honor Russell's memory, we are holding a celebration of life on February 3, 2024, at Lofty's Lounge in Evansdale, Iowa. The celebration will take place from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. We ask anyone who knew him to attend and remember Russell's life. Mary E. Webrand Dake, July 24, 1928 to January 15, 2024. Mary E. Webrand Dake passed away Monday, January fifteenth, 2024. Funeral services will be held at St. John's Lutheran Church on Monday, January twenty-second, 2024 at 11 a.m. with visitation one hour before the service. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to St. John's Lutheran Church or Cedar Bend Humane Society, 1166 West Airline Highway, Waterloo, Iowa, 50703. Kevin C. Landau, May 5, 1960, to January 14, 2024. Kevin C. Landau, 63, of Mason City, passed away Sunday, January 14, 2024. A funeral service will be held on Friday, January 19, 2024, at 10.30 a.m. at Major Erickson Funeral Home, 111 North Pennsylvania Avenue, with Pastor Jane Harris officiating. Interment will be held in Elmwood Saint Joseph Cemetery. Visitation will be held one hour prior to service on Friday. Online condolences may be left for the family at Major Erickson Funeral dot com. Nicholas David Nick Ray, october seventh, nineteen fifty nine, january fourteenth, twenty twenty four. Nicholas David Nick. Ray, passed away on January 14, 2024, at the age of 64, in Waterloo, Iowa. A celebration of life will be held at a later date to honor Nick's memory. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be directed to the family, care of Melissa Mendenhall, 2450 Maynard Avenue, Waterloo, Iowa, 50701. Cheryl Lee Hudson, June 8, 1950, to January 12, 2024. Cheryl Lee Hudson, 73, of Cedar Falls, Iowa, passed away Friday, January 12, 2024, at home after a lengthy illness. No memorials are requested, but if you wish to do so, the family request donations be made to Unity Point Hospice, 3731 University Avenue, Waterloo, Iowa, 50701. A private celebration of life will be termine, will be determined at a later date. Marjorie J. Lang, Marjorie J. Lang, ninety-four of Cedar Falls, passed away Monday, January fifteenth, twenty twenty-four. The funeral service will be held Friday, January nineteenth, twenty twenty-four, at eleven a.m. at Nazareth Lutheran Church, seventy-four oh one University Avenue, Cedar Falls, Iowa five oh six one three. Interment at Fairview Cemetery. Arrangements by Dahl Van Hove Schuof Funeral Home. Terry D. Stuckenberg January 27th 1934 to January 11th 2024 Terry D. Stuckenberg 86 of Cedar Falls passed away Thursday, January 11th, 2024 in Grundy Center. A celebration of life will be held at 4 p.m. on Sunday, January 21st, 2024 at Dahl Van Hove Schu Funeral Home in Cedar Falls. Arrangements by Dahl Van Hove Shoe Funeral Home and Cremation Service. Shirley Ann Rogers. Shirley Ann Rogers, 76, of Waterloo, died on Wednesday, January tenth, 2024, at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital. A funeral service will take place at 11 a.m. on Saturday, January twentieth, 2024, at Lock at Tower Park, 4140 Kimball Avenue, Waterloo. Visitation will take place one hour prior. Burial following at Mount Olivet Cemetery. LockFuneralServices.com Now turning to the sports page and high school wrestling. The headline is Process Over Outcome by Jim Nelson. Dateline, Gilbertville. Bosco and Wapsie focused on making large jumps. As the final month of the high school wrestling season narrows toward the postseason, coaches aren't always looking for results. Positive outcomes are good thing, but more than anything else, area coaches are looking to see if their process is working. That was the case Tuesday when defending state dual and traditional 1A state champion Don Bosco hosted two of the top 1A teams in the state in Lisbon and Wapsi Valley of Fairbank. The Don's process seems to be working as Bosco scored a 58-18 to win over Lisbon and downed the Warriors 59-18. to Lisbon edged Wapsie Valley 39-32 to in the third duel that went down to the last match. On the, on the night, the Dons lost just one contested match while giving up five forfeits while racking up 15 pins, two technical falls, and a pair of major decisions. Three things we learned from Don Bosco and Wapsie Valley. Don Bosco nearing full strength. While the Dons figure to be open at 113 the rest of the season, Don Bosco is showing it could potentially put double-digit wrestlers on the stand at Wells Fargo next month as the Dons chase history. Don Bosco, the five-time defending champion, has a chance to become the first program in state history to win six straight traditional titles. But chasing titles is not at the front of Don's head coach Chris Ortner's mind in mid-January. We have some guys who are making good progress, Ortner said. I'm really happy with how some guys competed, but we want everybody to make make process and progress. I think our guys' efforts uh, were good, and the attitude was good. Does anybody have four better freshmen than the Dons? Where they finish on the podium at the state tournament is obviously not a given. But without a doubt, when it comes to Hayden Schwab at 106. Dawson Youngblood at 132, Ethan Christopher at 144, and Kyler Salas at 215, these Don Bosco freshmen are going to be contenders at the state tournament. That quad has 70-plus victories and just five losses this season, with Schwab and Youngblood already ranked number one at their respective weights. Christopher missed most of the first half of the season dealing with an injury, while Salas was impressive Tuesday. Salas beat a pair of returning state qualifiers, pinning Wapsie Valley's Derek Hilsenbeck and scoring a 13-1 major decision over Lisbon's Indy Ferguson. He had a good night, Ortner said. Wapsie Valley not discouraged by losses. Warrior head coach Brian Kroll said his team gave away a couple of matches against Lisbon in what could have resulted in a better outcome, but for this time of the year, he was pleased with how his team competed. We had a couple of swing matches that didn't go our way against Lisbon, but I saw a lot of resiliency out of our boys. We came out and got after Don Bosco. I saw some of our athletes wrestle better in losses than they have competed all year, even in wins. It was a good learning night for the guys. We are going to go back and watch some film, keep our heads up, and be ready for the next competition. The Warriors return four state qualifiers. Easton Krall, Kanan Decker, Garrett Miller, and Hilsenbeck, while Caden Belinsky at 106 and Brody Kleitsch are putting together strong resumes as the postseason approaches. There is a lot of fight and a lot of willingness to learn in our room right now, Krall said. When the boys are asking questions, not only of the coaches, but of each other, it is a great learning environment. Everybody has bought in. We have a plan. You haven't seen the best Wapsie yet, and it is going to be an exciting postseason for us. Up next, the Dons and Warriors will see each other on February 10th at the 1A District at Denver, but well before that, they will test themselves this weekend at strong tournaments. Don Bosco heads west to the Herb Ergens Invitational at Ida Grove, where it will see some of the best teams from the western half of the state, while Wapsie Valley will travel to Green for the North Butler Invitational, where the Warriors... Warriors will see two more of the top 1A schools in the state in Lake Mills and Nashville Plainfield. Turning to the By the Numbers page, must-see TV, NFL, Saturday, 7.15 p.m. on Fox. The youngest team in the NFL faces the oldest when the Packers travel to San Francisco in the second round of the playoffs. Catch it if you can, NFL, Saturday, 3.30 p.m. at ESPN ABC. The upstart Texans are at Baltimore to face the heavily favored Ravens in the second round of the playoffs. Wow. Worth a peek, college men's basketball, Saturday, 7 p.m. on Fox. Number one, Yukon looks to stay atop the AP Top 25 list when it faces Big East rival Villanova. And on the background, in tennis, Thursday through Saturday, 8 p.m. on ESPN and ESPN2, Men's and women's third round action continues at the Australian Open in Melbourne. On Thursday, tonight, college basketball men's, 5.30 p.m. on FS1, Minnesota at Michigan. At 6 p.m., CBSSN, Monmouth at Drexel. On ESPN, South Florida at Memphis. On ESPN2, Wichita State at FAU on ESPNU, UNC Asheville, at Winthrop. At 7.30 p.m. on FS1, Illinois, at Michigan. At 8 p.m. on CBS, SN, Middle Tennessee, at UTEP. On ESPN2, Oregon State, at Utah. Uh, uh, Pac-12N, Washington, at California. 9.30 p.m., SF1, Oregon, at Colorado. And at 10 p.m., CBSSN Loyola, Loyola Marymount at San Francisco. And on Pac-12N, Washington State at Stanford. In college basketball, women's at 5 p.m. On ACCN, North Carolina at Georgia Tech. At 6 p.m., on BTN, Purdue at Penn State. On SECN, Tennessee at Mississippi State at 7 p.m. on ACN Virginia Tech at Duke, at 8 p.m. on SECN LSU at Alabama. In field hockey, women's, 5 a.m., CBSSN Olympic qualifier, U.S. versus Japan, semifinal, Ranchi, India. In golf, at 12 p.m., golf LPGA tour, the Hilton Grand Vacations Tournament of Champions First Round, Lake Nona Golf Course, Orlando, Florida. At 1 p.m., on ESPN2, Latin America Amateur Championships First Round, Santa Maria Golf Club, Panama City. At 3 p.m., Golf PGA Tour, The American Express First Round, Pete Dye Stadium Course, La Quinta, California. And at 6 p.m., Golf PGA Tour Champions. The Mitsubishi Electric Championship, first round, Hialeah GC, Kuala Kona, Hawaii. And for NBA basketball tonight at 6.30 p.m. on TNT, Chicago at Toronto. At 9 p.m. on TNT, Memphis at Minnesota. In men's soccer at 1 p.m. on CBSSN, Italian Super Club Napoli versus Fiorentina semifinal, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. In tennis, 10 a.m., excuse me, 2 a.m., ESPN2, ATP, slash WTA, the Australian Open, second round, Melbourne, Australia. At 10 a.m. on ESPN2, the Australian Open, second round, Melbourne, Australia. That's taped. And at 8 p.m. on ESPN, the Australian Open, third round, Melbourne, Australia. Now turning to men's basketball, this headline is UNI Continues to Show Growth, Freshman Kyle Pock Continues to Make Impact by Ethan Petrick. Dateline Cedar Falls Northern Iowa's mentality and defense stood out to Ben Jacobson on Sunday. As the Panthers erased a 7-point second half deficit to earn a 70-60 road win over Murray State, the UNI head coach said it looked like his team, wanted to win every possession. It is something the Panthers need to continue to demonstrate. On Monday, Jacobson expanded on the Panthers' mentality during an appearance on the Missouri Valley Conference men's basketball coach's Zoom call. The amount of importance and care that we place on a single possession, playing each possession with the same level of importance, we have some work to do, Jacobson said but I feel like the guys have done a great job of making some progress here over the last two or three weeks. The second half against Murray State was a really good move forward for us in that aspect. Jacobson also noted that the Panthers did a much better job of guarding the basketball on Sunday, which marked another area he felt UNI needed to improve. The Panthers improved on on on-ball defense, allowed UNI to limit the racers to 27 points in the first half, while the UNI offense sputtered. Jacobson credited the defensive improvements to a heightened level of communication from the Panthers. We could hear our guys talking and talking earlier, Jacobson said. It was just much sharper with their communication and much earlier. Part of that comes from playing together here a little bit. A big part of it for us comes from guys making a real commitment to it that helped us and allowed us to guard the basketball better. Kyle Park reached Double figures just once in the Panthers' first fifteen games of the season, scoring fourteen points against Division Three Loras College. The true freshman forward eclipsed double digits in each of the Panthers' previous two matchups with thirteen points against Illinois Chicago and twelve against Murray State. The production does not surprise Jacobson. We felt like he was going to have an impact, Jacobson said. I talked with Kyle along with each of the guys on our roster as we went through September and October, but in sitting down with Kyle, just telling him, man, we feel like you are ready to impact our team, and we feel like you are ready to help us win basketball games right now, and he has had some moments. He has played really good basketball. Pac's strong showings in back-to-back contests also coincided with an increase in playing time as the forward turned in 24 minutes against the Flames and 28 against the Racers after averaging 8.5 minutes per game through the first 15. According to Jacobson, the Bolivar Missouri product earned an increase in his minutes due to improvement in his communication and movement defensively. Being able to play games at this level, getting adjusted to the speed of the game, he has done a very good job in terms of those two things, Jacobson said. We have known he is going to impact our team and our play with what he does on the offensive end, but he has really worked and he has really done a great job the last two basketball games defensively in terms of his positioning and his communication. And for our last story, we have this. Projects across the region received Black Hawk County Gaming Association grants by Holly Hudson Hill, Dateline Waterloo. The Black Hawk County Gaming Association Board of Directors announced funding for five projects in its fiscal year 2024 fall grant cycle, including $2.5 million for the proposed Hard Court Tournament Center in Waterloo and $500,000 for the community natatorium in Cedar Falls. We're thrilled to fund two exceptional projects in Waterloo and Cedar Falls. Our board believes both projects will drive the Cedar Valley forward and aid the sister cities in achieving their strategic plans, said Emily Hanson, BHCGA Executive Director. While the Hardcourt facility is still in the fundraising stage, progress is being made. We have currently raised over 50% of our $35 million goals, said Jim Miller, Director of the Waterloo Development Corporation. This facility will primarily be geared toward youth sports, he said. The idea behind it is to host events on the weekends, and during the week, the facility will be available for all families in our community to enjoy, regardless of their financial circumstances. We want all of our kids to have access to it and get more involved in youth sports. Tentatively, we are looking at eight basketball courts with all wood floors that can be converted to 16 volleyball courts the waterloo development corporation board will be the project's developer and owner wdc was also the driving force behind the cedar valley sportsplex which was turned over to the city of waterloo last summer we transferred full ownership miller said miller said he is not sure if there will be a similar arrangement with the hard court facility our capital campaign is underway and we have initial architectural renderings that we are working on fine-tuning for a facility that will work for the market, he said, but until we get all the money raised, we won't have a firm timeline. The proposed site for the facility is behind the courtyard Marriott. The city has been doing work to get that site ready for development, Miller said. We are very appreciative of the Blackhawk County Gaming Association's support. We will continue with our campaign and try to make this facility a reality. Jump in is the group spearheading fundraising efforts for the Natatorium. The group's co-chairs are Tracy Malaro and Lorelei Redfern. So far, we have raised nearly $3.2 million through private and business donations and grants, Malaro said. We have had a lot of community support, including 552 individual donors with gifts ranging from $5 to $600,000. It is an exciting time. That leaves the group with about $1.2 million shy of its goal. We are in the process of applying for a community attraction and tourism grant, Malaro said, so the gaming grant couldn't have come at a better time. It enables us to apply for the CAT grant as those are the last dollars in. It is really great to get BHCGA's support. This project speaks to the health, safety, and vitality of the Cedar Valley, she said. We are underwhelmed with the current facilities, and this project will help the area prosper. Coupled with the hard courts, we believe the Cedar Valley will become a big hub for youth athletics in the state. We currently draw competitive swimmers from five other states. It is reasonable to foresee drawing from other states as well. Our current vision for various facilities are sorely lacking. They are breaking down. They are about 50 years old, said Malaro. The new facility will definitely be commensurate with other top facilities in the state with 10 competitive swimming lanes, 4 therapeutic lanes, and 2 diving boards. The design is superior to most of the others in our 7-county region. And it will give us what we need, an indoor space for swimming lessons, lifeguard training, and improved quality of life, and it will bring tourists and visitors to the area. We expect it to bring in $2.7 million to the Cedar Valley annually. And that does it for today's reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Thursday, January 18, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening.
1: living with chronic pain if so you may think prescription opioids are the solution the truth is the benefits of opioids are limited opioids only mask the pain opioids also come with serious side effects ranging from nausea to withdrawal symptoms to overdose as many as 25% of people who are prescribed opioids struggle with addiction and those who are addicted to opioids are 40 times more likely to move on to heroin no one wants to live in pain But no one should put their health at risk to be pain-free. There is another choice. Physical therapy. Physical therapists treat pain through movement and exercise. No warning labels required. And you get to be an active participant in your care. Choose to treat your pain safely. Choose physical therapy. Visit moveforwardpt.com to find a physical therapist near you. This public service announcement is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association.